Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Decoding the Unknown. As always, hello, I'm your host, Simon. What happens here is we decode the unknown. It's all there in the title. This is what happened to Lord Lucan. Says it right there on the page in front of me. If you're watching this, if you're listening to this, hello as well. This does go out as a podcast. So if you're on YouTube thinking, oh, I don't have that premium, so I can't listen to it in the background. Well, go grab it as a podcast. Why not? It's all good. And I think there's probably less adverts as a podcast as well, if you don't have premium. So that's a plus, I guess. I don't know why I'm saying that because <laughs> brilliant work, Simon. Brilliant business work. Getting people not to listen to adverts. Good job. Um, what happens here is Katie, the wonderful writer for this channel, writes me a script. Did I say it's called it, What Happened to Lord Lucan? I have no idea who Lord Lucan is. So uh, yeah, this is a cold read. And then Jen, our wonderful editor, is going to add some uh, some audio, some video afterwards. That's what editors do. Yes, let's jump into it. Richard John Bingham, Baron Bingham, Baron Lucan, Baronet Bingham of Castlebar, the seventh Earl of Lucan, Lucky Lucan, the notorious RJB. <laughs> I might have made that last one up myself. How many titles does one man need? Wait, all of those were actual titles? This guy's got some Idi Amin shit going down. <laughs> you guys know that that um, the guy, the, the dictator of... Uh, I want to say Uganda, but I could be wrong. <laughs> he's in that. He's in. He's uh, the the focus part of the focus of that Last King of Scotland movie with Idi uh, with Idi Amin with Forrest Whitaker, <laughs> and uh, his title was like seven line lines long on Wikipedia, like Noble Sir, God King, Lord of all Beasts of the Land. It it went on. Um, anyway, we're two lines in, and I've already gone off on a tangent. That happens here if you're new. Um, I'm sorry about that. How about best moustache of 1974? Again, I made that one up, although this guy was definitely a candidate. If some of these are ringing bells, then they all refer to one person who is today most popularly referred to as Lord Lucan, and it seems that he did add one more title to his roster, that of murderer. Ooh, I feel like we're getting into an episode of Casual Criminalist here, but this is decoding the unknown that doesn't necessarily have to be murder. Although I could see why people get these sh- those two shows confused, because... Well, they're really similar. Just this one's not just about true crime. It's about all sorts of mysterious stuff that uh, turns out to be not mysterious because I mean, critical. Anytime it's like ghosts in it, it's like, no, they didn't because ghosts aren't real, are they? <laughs> Turning off the primary audience. Uh, as you may have guessed from his many titles, he was a British aristocrat who made global headlines when in 1974 he disappeared into thin air after the brutal murder of his children's nanny. But how was. Oh, maybe I do know this story. Now this is ringing bells. But how involved was he in the killing, and what might he have done? What might have happened to him in the aftermath? Could he still be alive? Just a note that this story does contain details of a murder and also talk of suicide later on. If that's not your bag, no hard feelings here. Let's take it. That is a uh, what we call these days a trigger warning. You're welcome. They're very rare in my videos, and uh, sometimes they're they're probably needed. And everyone in the comments is like, Simon, a trigger warning would have been nice. <laughs> Uh, and I'm like, well, you're listening to a true... Pro- with Casual Criminalist, you're listening to a true crime podcast, aren't you, mate? <laughs> I feel like the whole thing should be a trigger warning. 
Let's take a dive into the story that scandalized and fascinated the British public and still makes occasional headlines to this day. That's probably why I'm vaguely familiar with this. Uh, it's like this is the murdering of the nanny by the aristocrat. Does feel like a story I know. I couldn't remember the dude's name. Anyway, hopefully I won't spoil anything. Some backgrounds. Born into the wealthy Bingham family in 1934, Richard John Bingham was set up for success. Before we get going properly, just a note from now on that I'm going to refer to him as Lord Lucan, or Lucan as that's how he's known in popular culture. He didn't inherit the title until his father died in 1964. That's such a weird British thing, being able to inherit titles. Like, really? <laughs> really, Britain? I mean, can we get over the heritage thing? But I don't think there's going to be any confusion as to who we're talking about. It's basically going to be him all the time. Lucan is an area in Ireland, and the Earl of Lucan is a title that's been recognized legally since 1795. Recognized legally implies that there's some sort of benefit to it. I mean, you get to write Lord on your like passport and credit cards, I guess. But it's like, sir, I made a whole video about the benefits of knighthood. And, you know, you'd think, you're going to get some money for that? Are there going to be some, like, perks? Do you get to go to the Queen's birthday party? And it turns out, no. Basically, you just get to use sir in front of your name. And the biggest benefit seems to be, like, restaurants really like that. If you're like, uh, yeah, sir, booking for Mr. Whistler. It's sir. Sir Simon, actually. And they're like, come this way, sir. We've got a corner table just for you. <laughs> He was the eldest son, although not the eldest child, of an Irish peer, so is in line to inherit his father's titles and his seat in the House of Lords. That's right, everybody listening who's not British, there is a part of uh, Parliament in the UK, or there's the House of Commons, the House of Lords, it's broken up into two parts, and the House of Lords is just for people who inherited their jobs. How wild is that? It's not very important anymore, and the House of Commons, which is the elected officials, can totally override them. They just can delay it for a little while, or at least they could a while ago. It's largely pointless. I think it should absolutely be got rid of. But then again, I'm, you know, I mean, <laughs> I'm pretty Republican in general. Like, not American Republican, like for Republicanism, like the idea of you know, electing a head of state rather than having a royal. The sort of stuff that would have got my head chopped off a few hundred years ago. Lucan went to school at Eton, the only place proper posh boys are allowed to go. I couldn't find out anything about what he studied, but the main takeaway was that while at college, he started gambling and became a bookie for the other students. Legend. <laughs> I love, I, I don't know, I always got like a bit of a respect for the kids who like hustle <laughs> at school. It's like, okay. He made quite good money with his side hustle, but according to his mother, his grades were far from credible. Uh, creditable, sorry. That's a new word to me. Still, that doesn't really seem to matter if you came from the British upper class. The only other thing I saw was that he was good at racing speedboats, which feels like the biggest rich person thing ever. What does your child do as a zombie? He races speedboats. Oh. I feel like racing like super expensive fiberglass catamarans might be like also up there. But um yeah, that's a that's a that's some rich person right there. Ah yes, the old school speedboat races. After finishing eating in nineteen fifty three, he did his national service stint in the army, which was still a requirement for physically fit males at the time. Oh my god. I mean, I always say that I'm really glad that there wasn't conscription and stuff, but I was in the cadets at school, like in the Navy cadets, and it was I felt that was really good for me. And I kind of think that conscription in general, like not so you have to go and fight in a war and shit, but that you have to do, I don't know, maybe a year after school before you go to university in like the military, getting trained up and stuff. I generally think that'd be quite a good idea, it, like teach people discipline. I mean, I know it hammers out like creativity and stuff, but I don't know. It works really well. And I made a video ages ago 
about how in Israel, where they have like mandatory um, like conscription for like it's like two or three years or something crazy, and they have to go fight because you know Israel. Um, but one of the benefits of that was like all the like rich kids would go, or like all of not not just the rich kids, but all of the kids would all blend together. So they'd go from like you know you'd have some from like. Know, like Israeli Eton or whatever, and you'd somehow from like some from you know school in the middle of nowhere where only poor people go, and they'd all mix together in the armed forces, and it would be great for like innovation and you know people with good ideas getting money from the rich kids and all of this stuff. And apparently, it was good for like innovation. And I'm like, yeah, kind of. It, I don't know. This was a massive tangent. <laughs> no one cares about. It's probably an unpopular opinion. So well done, whistle boy. Let's get back to it. While in Germany in the Coldstream Guards, coolest name of some guards ever, he diversified his gambling portfolio by playing lots of poker. Uh, which is different though, like playing poker. I always feel like if you're the bookie at school who is taking bets, <laughs> you're the house. You've got an edge. And then you graduate to playing, graduate to playing poker. I feel like that's just, you know, maybe you just come from a rich family in whatever veneur. Doesn't matter. Moving on. After the army, he was a merchant banker for a few years, but his true passion was definitely gambling. He won big, but he also lost big. I guess that's how gambling works. It is, and usually you lose a little bit more than you win. He fell in with a set of other rich gamblers, and in 1960, he won £26,000 playing a version of the card game Baccarat known as Chemin de Fer. According to the Bank of England's inflation calculator, this was about £612,000 in 2020 pounds, or around $841,000. Holy sh in 2020 dollars a pretty good pot i think you'll agree and it was one of the main reasons lucan then quit his job at the bank to become a quote quote uh quote unquote professional gambler which basically means an obnoxious playboy yes it's exactly what i talked about before in 1962 zoo owning gambling lover john aspinall founded the exclusive claremont club london's first casino in fashionable mayfair Lucan was a frequent visitor to the Clement Club, where he was in the company of many other people with hereditary titles and also big names like actor Peter Sellers and James Bond creator Ian Fleming. In fact, it's said that Lucan was approached to play the iconic English spy even though he had zero acting experience, but where does a lack of talent ever stand in the way of the entitled? Yeah, that also sounds like just some that he made up, doesn't it? Is there any evidence to say that? Or was he like, no, 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 they asked me to play James Bond? It'd be like, yeah, 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 honestly, they asked me too, but I turned it down. I was busy doing my YouTube thing, and I, I just didn't have time. I think, uh, you know, I'd have made a great success of a Daniel Craig, but I just, honestly, the, uh, you know, the time wasn't very, I was just not enough time. Money wasn't very interesting. They only offered, like, 20 million pounds. Ah! <laughs> Never happens, mate. He was living the Bond's life, though, with his jet-setting lifestyle, love of Aston Martins, and the aforementioned speedboats. Chemin de Fer was also Bond's preferred car game, card game in the books and was shown in several of the films. Lucan and Bond both also enjoy vodka martinis, and as a tall, good-looking, and charismatic man, Lucan definitely looked the part, although with the addition of his famous Tash. In his career as a professional gambler, Lucan wasn't really that great. He was known as Lucky Lucan after his original big win but it turned out to be pretty ironic he was extremely good at backgammon and even won tournaments including a championship in america but in total he lost far more than he won the nickname stark though and it's not a bad nickname to have better than loser lucan i suppose definitely <laughs> Definitely. In 1963, Lucan met Veronica Duncan, an art school graduate, model, and a secretary. Sounds like exactly the sort of guy that in the 1960s this dude's supposed to marry, doesn't it? 
The two hit it off and got married the next year. Shocking news. Lucan was going through a bit of a bad patch in his gambling results at the time, so it's pretty convenient that his father gave him a whole bunch of money to basically start his own family. Must be nice. Lucan bought 46 Lower Belgrave Street. That which sounds, I don't know, anything like Belgrave, Belgravia, Belgravia, how do you say it? Belgravia? Expensive part of London, so I imagine that's a very expensive address. And the couple had three children over the next six years. Also adding a nice bum to Lucan's finances was the fact that his father, the sixth Earl of Lucan, had died shortly after the wedding, leaving the now seventh Earl of Lucan with an inheritance of around £250,000, which in today's money is over £5 million or $7 million. All was not rosy in the land of the Lucans, though. Lord Lucan spent a lot of his time at the Clermont Club gambling away his family's money. That is so depressing. They, this guy's. I mean, I know it's like it's probably like his great great grandpappy's money or whatever, but it is depressing that it could all just be destroyed in one generation. It's like, oh, brilliant. So I worked super hard and then you gambled it all away drinking martinis with Ian Fleming. I mean, that does sound awesome, but also, goddamn, man, I worked a long time for that money, or your great great grandpappy did. His wife, or maybe they didn't, maybe they were just like some of these English families where it's just like they were given money back in the day because one of them was a knight or some and then that la- or land and that land became a lot of money and you know that kind of stuff so who gives a sh-? let's move on his wife veronica now the countess of lucan had been badly affected by postnatal depression and her mental condition why am i reading this so jolly <laughs> sorry his wife veronica now the countess of lucan had been badly affected by postnatal depression and a mental condition supposedly alarmed lucan as it should if your wife is depressed you should do something about that it should be alarming fix it Sources vary on whether he tried to have her committed or just sought out psychiatric treatment for her, but either way, she refused to stay in any kind of clinic and was not forced to go. Their relationship deteriorated, with Veronica increasingly relying on nannies to help look after her children and Lucan spending all his time losing at the club. In 1972, the couple separated, with Lucan moving out. While a lot of emphasis had been put on the state of his wife's mental health at this point, it seems that he too had gone into something of a mental decline. I mean, his life sounds like super playboyish and stuff, but at a point, it's got to be a bit like, what's the point? You're just going to a club and just gambling all day and losing money. It's just, even if you've got infinite money, it's really depressing. I mean, it would be like just playing, it's just, you know, it's just depressing. There's no other way to look at it, is it? It would be like playing a gambling game where the money's not real and you just play it every day and you always lose. Be like, that would get boring real fast. He was dead set on getting custody of his children at the point of hiring private investigators and spying on his family himself from his car on the street. In trying to prove Veronica was not capable of looking after the children, though, uh, Lucan totally shot himself in the foot and instead proved his behavior was unwarranted and just a bit weird. Yes, Veronica was awarded custody of their three children, with Lucan having visitation rights every other weekend. Oh no, dude. You shouldn't have spied on them. You did this to yourself. This was a huge blow to Luke, and he really did love his children. His family now taken from him, coupled with his gambling woes, led to even bigger money issues as Lucan had lost a lot of money on the court case and still had to pay towards his family's expenses. As well as living in one of the priciest areas priciest areas of the country, they were used to things like regular food orders from Harrods and Veronica, shopped for clothes on Savile Row. Due to being diagnosed with depression and anxiety, it was ruled that Veronica had to have a nanny to help her look after her children, a decision that rankled with Lucan as he tried his hardest to interfere with the process dude if you love your children it sounds really good that she should have a nanny there because she's not mentally stable right she was going to be committed but they didn't 
uh, force her to go. It sounds like, you know, there's more than just light, depre- <laughs> light depression. Uh, there's more mild depression. More than just mild depression going on there. Several, <laughs> well done, Simon. You psychologist, <laughs> really solving all the problems here, aren't you? Several nannies came and went through the Lucan household, some reporting that they'd had disturbing anonymous phone calls and others being investigated by private investigators again. Lucan, uh, looking for a nanny might carry some risk of being hounded by private investigators and having all of your personal sh- looked into in case there's anything wrong so that you could be uh, fired. Brilliant. Yeah, sounds like an appealing job. Luke had even tried to get information about his wife out of them, but it didn't do him any good. Eventually, in 1974, Sandra Rivett joined the Lucan family as their nanny. Recently divorced from her husband and the mother of a boy who had been adopted short after birth, shortly after birth, Sandra used to take Thursdays off to see her new boyfriend. Meanwhile, friends began to become concerned about Lucan's apparent obsession with his children, his increase in drinking, and the huge amounts of money that he was regularly losing. He has even remembered her saying things like he could murder his wife and put an end to all his financial worries. Holy sh**, dude. It sounds like you should murder your gambling habit, to be honest. I mean, I'm sure her habits are expensive, like Savile Row's no joke, but also um, your gambling's probably the bigger issue. On the 7th of November, 1974, all of these things came to a head. The murder. I feel like this definitely belongs on Casual Criminals, doesn't it? I'm like absolutely confused about what I'm reading, but here we are. It happens sometimes. On the night of Thursday, November the 7th, 1974, Lord Lucan's estranged wife, Veronica, was at their home on Lower Belgrave Street with their th- three children and the nanny, Sandra Ribbit. As we said just a minute ago, Sandra used to have Thursdays off to see her boyfriends, but unfortunately for her, this particular week, she had seen him on Wednesday instead, so was at work when she normally wouldn't have been. Just before 9pm, after some of the Lucan juniors were in bed, Sandra Ribbit asked Veronica if she wanted a cup of tea. If this was me, I would have said no, as any caffeine past about 6pm will keep me up all night, but apparently this was not the case for Sandra and Veronica. Yeah, too. Same same for me. Like I drink coffee all day like a monster, but it gets to around 4 or 5, and then I'm like, no, no more, because i got to, you know, sleep. And I also go to bed at 9 o'clock, because I have two small children, and they wake up extremely early. In fact, not this morning, but yesterday morning, they decided, let's get up at 4 o'clock. And I'm like, great. Thanks, guys. Really happy to be up at 4 it's not going to make me tired throughout the day at all no problem no problem it's not i've got a busy schedule or anything ah please stop i love you though the layout of 46 lower belgrave street meant that the kitchen was in the basement of the house so sandra of it went downstairs to make the tea it was very dark and the light going down to the kitchen didn't work i was <laughs> total tangent but i've been like uh, uh, uh shopping do you shop for houses no you look for houses i saw a house a couple of months ago where the kitchen was upstairs it was so strange walked into the house and it's like you're wandering around the downstairs and i'm like there's no kitchen and then go up there and they're like no no it's upstairs and i'm like what is this an upside down house who the hell is the kitchen upstairs <laughs> so it was and there was a bedroom downstairs and i'm like why isn't this the kitchen and I'm like, i don't want this house i'd have to swap these two bedroom for a kitchen it's like why why did you do this it was very dark and the light going down to the kitchen didn't work. Sandra probably thought the bulb had blown, but it was later discovered that it had been removed. As she reached the dark basement, Sandra was attacked by a man wielding a lead pipe. Beaten brutally around the head, she suffered major trauma and choked to death on her own blood. After the savage attack, her body was stuffed into a large mail sack that meant to be lying around. She was 29 years old. 
Not having realized there was an intruder in the house, Veronica came to the top of the stairs to see what Sandra was doing down there. As she started coming down, a man rushed up and hit her several times with a pipe. After fighting with him, she grabbed his testicles. Oh my, and managed to make her escape. Uh, I thought like kicking people in the testicles was a new thing. Grabbing though, that's uh, that's that's something like through the trousers. You like rummaging around like I don't. How's that work? I don't know. Rushing into the nearby Plumber's Arms, that's the name of a pub, not a burly heating engineer who was hanging around outside. A bloodied Veronica screamed, Help me! I've just escaped from being murdered! My children! My children! He's murdered! My nanny! By the time the police arrived, the attacker had long scarpered, leaving the Lucan children unhurt. A few hours later, Lord Lucan turned up at his friend's house, the, the Maxwell Scotts, and he told Susan Maxwell Scott that he had seen his wife being attacked and rushed in to help. Lady Lucan had told him that the nanny was dead and then accused him of orchestrating the attack. In a panic, Lucan had fled the house and driven to the Maxwell Scots. He wrote some letters and called his mother to ask if he... Uh, asked her to pick up the children after as there had been a terrible catastrophe at lower belgrave street according to susan maxwell scott he was in shock but composed after he left the house in the early hours of the 8th of november 1974 he was never seen again <laughs> doesn't sound guilty at all does he <laughs> why it had to be lucan the fact that he ran and disappeared immediately after the murder and attack points the finger of blame squarely at Lord Lucan. There is a tiny bit of wiggle room that he might not have been the actual hand to wield the murder weapon, which we'll go into in a bit, but it's generally agreed upon that he was the murderer. Yeah, if you're like rich. I mean, I want to say like you should like don't you just don't rich people like hire hitmen who just murder people and then totally like get away with it and stuff, or hopefully not. But also yeah as i like this does absolutely feel like an episode of casual criminalist on casual criminalist i'm always saying you know don't tell other people like the biggest thing people are always getting caught because they're telling other people about their crimes they're bragging about their crimes they're you know doing crimes in pairs and the biggest thing is just don't do crime with someone else so i feel like you're less likely to get caught if you actually do the crime yourself rather than hire someone to do the crime because i don't know that just always seems to end in trouble but maybe not i don't know what the statistics bear out i mean there probably aren't statistics on assassination not assassination what's it called uh murder for hire is there a word for that like hitmen thank you myself big brain the main witness is of course lady luke and she testified that she recognized her husband's voice telling her to shut up as they fought in the dark on the stairs then after having given his grapes a good old squeezing the fight had gone out of him and she had actually managed to get him to go upstairs and start cleaning himself up he told her he had killed the nanny and she said that she would help him escape but they'd both need to lay low for a few days while the injuries she sustained healed up a bit why would she do this while he was upstairs getting towels and possibly taking some of her sedatives she took her chance and ran out for help oh i see well why would he believe this <laughs> that's the thing if it's like the the wife who you don't the wife who doesn't like you is helping you get away with murder i'll be like yo 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 you stay here <laughs> you're not going anywhere right now <laughs> In this version, it's fair to say that Lady Lucan would have been pretty hard-pressed to mistake the person who admitted to the murder to be anyone other than her estranged husband. One of his children also confirms that she saw him at the house that night, and in his letters to his brother-in-law, which we'll go over in a bit, Lucan even placed himself at the house that night. After his wife raised the alarm, Lucan quickly left and drove to the Maxwell Scott House in Sussex, 68 kilometers, that's 42 miles away. In a strong point against him, Lucan was driving not his own Mercedes, but a Ford Corsair that he had borrowed from a friend a couple of weeks earlier. Why had he borrowed this particular car? 
His friends had offered him a more luxurious ride, but Luca had chosen this one, and the only real conclusion we can come to is that he was using it to spar on his family incognito. Was it already planned to be a getaway vehicle several weeks before the murder? That's just speculation. His Mercedes was found after his disappearance, and the battery was flat, so maybe you just couldn't be bothered to replace it and had and was using someone else's car instead, but it certainly doesn't look good. The Ford Corsair was found a couple of days later on the 11th of November at the port of New Haven in East Sussex. In the car was a lead pipe and a bottle of vodka. Blood found in the car was thought to be a match to both Sandra Rivet and Lady Lucan, although the lead piping was not the murder weapon, as this was left at the scene. From the port, there's a railway station and also regular ferries that cross the channel to France, so it's quite a good base to start if you're thinking of running from the police. Yeah, I mean, the railway station is like less good than the ferry. I feel like if you're on the run from the police, like just immediately leave. Go to one of those countries where they don't um, extradite. Like, just get there quickly. <laughs> I mean, France is not one of those countries, I guess. But, you know, from there... You can travel by car rather than the UK. It's an island. It's going to be hard to leave at some point once they're really looking for you, especially if you're Lord so-and-so of wherever. The general consensus of this case has been that due to the lack of any evidence suggesting anything else, Lucan broke into his old family home or still had a key, removed the lie bulb, or waited for Veronica in the dark. When Sandra, whom he had not been expecting to be at the house, came downstairs, he attacked her, thinking it was his estranged wife. After trying to cover up the killing, he attacked his wife on the way out, but after she managed to fight back, he gave it up as a bad job. Whether he was intending to attack her again later that night is up for debate, but she stymied that plan anyway by escaping the house. Lucan then discovered that Lucan then disappeared to avoid being tried for murder. In his absence, an inquest was held in 1975, and he was formally declared guilty of the murder of Sandra Rivet, making him the first lord to be convicted of murder since 1760. The murder and disappearance understandably caused a sensation in the media, with the Sun's rather subdued Earl sought in death mystery versus the Daily Mail Mail's dawn hunt for Lucan's body. <laughs> Daily Mail, such a piece of sh. The New York Times was keeping the story alive in 1979 with Missing Lord Luke and Worldwide Enigma. And sightings popped up all over the world. Don't worry, we'll get into those a little bit later. Oh, I see. I see why this is on an episode of Decoding the Unknown rather than Casual Criminalist. Sometimes there would be an advantage to reading these ahead because everyone's like, why is this on Decoding the Unknown so far? Including myself. And that's because it's going to be, the mystery is going to be, is he alive? I mean, we did mention that really early on, but it's going to be a major part of this episode because it's still a lot of pages left to go. Uh, whether, you know, all these sightings, is he really living somewhere else? Is he having some, like, secret life? That's why. That's why we're on Decoding the Unknown. It's all making sense now. According to Lady Lucan, he had been violent with her when they lived together, including hitting her with a cane wrapped in sticking plaster. I don't know what sticking plaster is, dude, but that sounds like some nasty shit. The lead pipe at the murder scene and the one found in the abandoned car had both been wrapped in a similar material. It seemed pretty cut and dry that Lucan was the sole perpetrator of the crimes and had somehow managed to flee from justice. But was that the only story? Not quite. Why it might not have been Lucan? Well, 
Okay, we all know it was him. <laughs> but was it physically his hand on the murder weapon? Uh, l- let's look at his side of the story for a moment. Just a moment, though. Don't want to inject too much doubt into the story after all this time. We know Lucan's explanation for the bloody events because he wrote three letters after the murder and also called his mother. It also did not seem to occur to his friend Susan Maxwell Scott that he was telling anything other than the truth as she didn't call the police or think he was acting in any manner that suggested he just brutally attacked two women. At Susan Maxwell Scott's house, Lucan wrote two letters to his friend and brother-in-law William Shant Kidd. One detailed how to sort his various financial situations due to the sale of something that was coming up. The last line was, the other creditors can get lost for the time being. It was signed rather poignantly, Lucky. He had creditors, so not only was he gambling all of his money away, he was also borrowing money, it seems. Brilliant. Good work. His other letter went into a bit more detail about what had happened at his former family home. Let's read the whole thing and see what we think. In case you're not familiar with the phrase that crops up twice to lie doggo, it means that you keep your head down and lie low. Oh, I had no idea. I learned that phrase today. Great. It's going to be very useful. It's pretty obvious, but just in case you've been raised on the internet and can only think that Doggo is a type of cute dog. I thought it would avoid confusion. Here's the letter from Lord Lucan to his friend, dated the 7th of November 1974. And it's obviously quote. The most ghastly circumstances arose tonight, which I briefly described to my mother. When I interrupted the fight at Lower Belgrave Street and the man left, Veronica accused me of having hired him. I took her upstairs and sent Frances up to bed and tried to clean her up. She lay doggo for a bit and, when I was in the bathroom, left the house. The the circumstantial evidence against me is strong in that V will say that it was all my doing. I will also lie doggo for a bit, but I'm only concerned for the children. If you can manage it, I want them to live with you. Coots, trustees, St. Martin's Lane, Mr. Wall will handle the school fees. V has demonstrated a hatred for me in the past and would do anything to see me accused. For George and Francis to go through life knowing that their father had stood in the dock for attempted murder would be too much. When they are old enough to understand, explain to them the dream of paranoia and look after them. Yours ever, John. As you can see, Lucan's story was that he was just passing by, as one does when one has constantly been staking out one's estranged family for months and saw his wife being attacked by an intruder. Intruder. He led himself into the house and saved Veronica from the other man. He told Susan Maxwell Scott that he had slipped in some blood at this point. His story then matches his wife's and that they went upstairs to clean up and she left the house. The major difference obviously being that in her version of the events it was him that attacked her. Maybe if you squint, there is the smallest possibility that it was not Lucan who carried out the attack and that in the dark his wife then assumed he was the attacker after the actual attacker fled. Or as per his letter, she hated him so much that she would pin it on him anyway even knowing it wasn't him. This is so... Is it, Dude, you didn't have a contingency. You went there to murder your wife allegedly you didn't have a contingency plan for what happens if the woman was there and you ended up murdering her instead and then your wife saw and basically now you don't really have an explanation for this and uh that is why you are guilty as sin allegedly no i don't have to say allegedly he was in he was tried in absenteeism absentia absentia and guilty of murder so no allegedly there it was you mate this thread is worth pulling if only a little all right katie (laughs) (laughs) let's pull it a little 
Veronica Lucan is something of an unreliable narrator. The major facts of the attack and Lucan's confession come only from one source, Veronica Lucan. After running for help to the pub, she was coherent enough to speak in sentences to get her message across, but never said that her husband was the villain. Okay, you can put that down to shock and fear, but it would have been useful to tell people that you knew who the murderer was straight away. She'd also sustained several blows to the head, so might have been confused and lost some time due to passing out. She also told police that she recognized his voice, uh, while they were fighting on the stairs, but if they'd spent significant time together trying to clean up while she pretended she'd help him, surely she would have known it was him, and recognizing his voice is kind of not really relevant as she was seeing him with her own eyes, and he admits being there. Uh, the main side theory is that, as Lucan wrote in his letter, he hired someone to kill his wife. The nanny was a mistake, and maybe if he was peering in to spy on proceedings, Lucan realized that it wasn't his wife who had gone downstairs first or actually had a change of heart and burst in to stop the attack. Even though he was in a hole financially and personally, Lucan was still a member of the British elite. Would he really have gone so far as to wait in the dark with a pipe to off his wife when he could pay someone else to do it? Yes, maybe. I mean, yeah. Just because you're part of the elite doesn't mean that you're not gonna be you're not capable of murdering someone, for sure. He managed to tie himself to the murder anyway by leaving in a car which had an almost identical lead pipe in it and blood which was matched to both women. Dude. This <laughs> is like mega, mega guilty. This was the 1970s, so DNA proof was not available, but the blood groups found apparently matched Sandra Rivet and Veronica Lucan, so I guess we'll have to rely on that. Can't they retest this? Do they not have an evidence box these days and then they can test like his kid and or not? Yeah, they can test her kids and I don't know about the other women. Um, they could probably find some relative or no they'll because they were murdered she was murdered they'll have her body they'll also have samples from her so they, can't they match them up now or does no one really care because he's already been found guilty it'd be nice to have the mystery solved though wouldn't it maybe they do do it we'll find out if it wasn't their blood it was the most enormous of coincidences <laughs> speaking of coincidences what of that third letter that lucan wrote it was to his friend michael stoop he of the ford corsair that lucan was driving when the murder occurred here's what he said my dear michael i have had a traumatic night of unbelievable coincidence however i won't bore you with anything or involve you except to say that when you come across my children which i hope you will please tell them that you knew me and that all i cared about was them the fact that a crooked solicitor and a rotten psychiatrist destroyed me between them will be of no importance to the children i gave bill shandkid an account of what actually happened but judging by my last effort in court no one let alone a 67 year old judge would believe me and I no longer care, except that my children should be protected. Yours ever, John. In both letters to his friends, Lucan is very preoccupied with what his children will think of him and that they're looked after. He makes no admissions of guilt and doesn't give any hint as to what his next moves or overall plans are, or even if he has a plan. Michael Stoop read his letter as a suicide note, especially given the phrase, I no longer care. Lucan's letter to William Shandkid also seems like it's a final goodbye, given the last line of, when they are old enough to understand, explain to them the dream of paranoia and look after them. Whether he was directly involved or indirectly involved, the fact that Lucan disappeared rather than going to the police is a very strong indication of guilt. Yes, no sh <laughs> There is, however, the faintest whiff of another man who could have been in the house and may have been totally unconnected to Lucan. Really? 
Lucan's sister gave a statement to the police in 1974 saying that the Lord's young daughters had mentioned a boyfriend who stayed at the house. No names were forthcoming, but as the girls had mentioned that the man sometimes stayed in the nanny's room and she stayed with them when he did, it seems unlikely that he was Rivet's boyfriend. Oh, okay, because she was sleeping with the children and he was sleeping alone in her room. Also, Rivet hadn't been working for the Lucans for a very long time, so it might have been a bit early for her to have guests staying over. Plus, it wouldn't really be very professional. So, was it this man, possibly a boyfriend of Veronica Lucans, who had carried out the attack? Maybe he had meant to kill Sandra Rivet after all. What? Why? Like, what motivation? The other guy has, like, super strong motivation here. There's, like, I, I don't know what it is. And after Veronica was attacked, maybe she momentarily backed out and came around as Lucan entered and just assumed that it had been him the whole time. Lucan, knowing this would look bad for him, whatever happened, took his chances and he left the scene. His fingerprints weren't found on the weapon or in any or in the basement, but this doesn't mean much as he puts himself at the scene of the crime anyway. That didn't, I mean, it does kind of mean a little bit. He's saying he's there doesn't mean he handled the lead pipe and used it to whack his uh, or attempt to whack his wife and end up accidentally whacking the babysitter. Uh, but also, he probably just wore some gloves, didn't he? <laughs> there didn't appear to be any easy way to exit the house apart from the front door, and no witnesses came forward with sightings of this other man. There were no sightings of Lucan leaving the house either, though, so anybody could have slipped out. Sandra Rivet's blood was found in the back garden of the house, which is a bit weird, but the garden was walled, and it was deemed that nobody likely escaped from there. Lucan would have known about the wall, so is it likely that he was the one who went outside? It could have been accidental transfer during the police investigation, or maybe a third party, hired by Lucan or not, was involved. The mystery man anger was never brought up at the inquest, so who knows whether Lucan was actually telling the truth? He probably wasn't, though. The most compelling thing there is the blood in the garden, and even that is just like it was probably an accident or uh, something like that. Fairly, I'd be fairly quick to dismiss that as you know, accidental transfer somehow because everything else seems pretty cut and dry, doesn't it, Lord? After the murder, theories. We've talked about the murder, now let's get on to the next mystery part of our story, what happened to Lord Lucan. There are two theories, either he killed himself almost immediately after driving to New Haven, or he managed to escape and went into perfect hiding for an unknown and possibly still ongoing period of time. Oh, it'd be really old though. Wasn't he born in like the 1920s? I don't remember, but it'd be a really old man. Let's talk about the suicide theory first. Supposing that Lord Lucan had been the perpetrator or instigator of the murder, knowing that it had been completely ballsed up, put him in an awkward position. The death penalty had already been abolished by this point, but going to prison for murder would ruin his family name, and it seemed like the last thing he wanted for his children were for them to see him as a murderer. He had been drinking heavily in the months before the murder, and while his friends at the time say his mood had lifted in the weeks immediately prior, who knows what his mental state was actually like at the time. He might have thought that suicide would be the best resolution to the situation and simply put an end to things. If he did think that, he managed to balls that up too. It's not common for people who kill themselves to do it in such a way that they're never found. Drowning is probably one of the few ways where a body might never be recovered, but it's not a guarantee. Yeah, isn't this like the swimming out to sea thing? I always remember there's that scene in a... Oh, what was that TV show show called? Was it called MI5? Or Spooks? Was it called Spooks? Yeah, maybe MI5 was like the international name. Um, but it was called Spooks, which is like the British word for spies. And there's that really intense scene where the guy's like, he just swims out to sea and dies. I think he dies. It's been a very long time since I saw that TV show. But that's how he chooses to go. He just like goes to the beach and just swims out to sea. Like, oh my God, <laughs> it's so intense. 
It's hard to think that Lucan would intentionally have meant for his body not to be found. There would be no closure in the case for his family or estate. If he had planned the murder of his wife, it was to help with his financial and family issues, and presumably if the plan had gone successfully, he would still be there to reap his ill-gotten benefits. Dude, but you're gonna be like the number one suspect. It's always the husband. What I mean is that he would not have had a plan in place to kill himself and not be found. If he did jump into the channel and got pulled out to sea or whatever, it would have been by chance. One of his friends, yeah, but it's not an impossible thing, is it? One of his friends thought he had, he had sailed a motorboat out into the channel and jumped overboard. After changing her mind a couple of times, Lady Lucan eventually said that she thought he'd taken the ferry out of New Haven and deciding to end his life like the nobleman he was, he jumped into the propellers of the ferry. Oh my god. <laughs> Is that how noblemen are supposed to be? He decided to end his life like a nobleman. He jumped into the propellers of a massive ship. <laughs> Holy sh. Who would do that? Is that a traditional way for nobility to take their own lives? It's a good question. I believe the answer is no. John Aspinall also mentioned killing himself as a noble way out, but to me, the noble thing to do after this sort of thing would be to turn yourself in, admit your guilt, and face the consequences like a good, honorable chap. Yes, but it ruins your family name, doesn't it? Rather leave some mystery out there. Lucan had insomnia, so he took sleeping tablets as a matter of course. Wouldn't you just load up on those and slip overboard if you were planning on offing yourself in that way? Who on earth would consciously jump into a boat's propellers? It is crazy. Also, what if you don't get destroyed by them? What if you miss? I mean, then you just drown, which I suppose is the end result is the same, but I don't know. That is very strange. I would be like, no, he didn't jump into those boat propellers of that boat. That is a big stretch. And not a single trace of him has ever been found. If he got chopped up in the blades, there would be, in theory, lots of little traces to be found. Of course, I never knew the man, but this seems like a totally weird and unnecessary way to go. The detective assigned to the case was Detective Troop Chief Superintendent Roy Ranson. He initially also thought that Lord Lucan had died by suicide, but searches of the areas around New Haven Port yielded no results. Most of the searches have been described as partial, though, so it's possible that they missed things. Nonetheless, a warrant was issued for Lucan's arrest on the 12th of November 1974. In later years, even Ransom changed his mind and decided that Lucan had actually managed to escape. So, why do people think he fled? While he was no longer flush with cash, he still had means, ways, and he was connected. He had influential and very rich friends. Yeah, but if you're wanted for murder, the chances are that, you know, someone's going to turn you in. Like, yeah, it doesn't matter if they're influential and rich. If someone you're going to be like, dude, did you murder your wife, mate? <laughs> I'm going to tell on you. His gang at the Claremont Club were totally unhelpful to police investigators, earning them the nickname The Eaton Mafia, and at least one friend publicly stated that even if he did know something, he wouldn't tell the police anything. All of Lucan's personal belongings, I guess he's got better friends than I would be, <laughs> uh, of Lucan's personal belongings like his passport, car keys, and glasses were still at his flat, so either that was a red herring to make people think that he had killed himself, or he was still in the country, or he just fled with the clothes on his back and had a second set of false ID papers stashed somewhere just for this occurrence. That is some spy sh**. Well, he was going to play James Bond, wasn't he? It's highly possible that he could ask someone to help him leave the country on a small private plane or boat, as this was the time before mobile phones, so news was not instantaneous. Yeah, I'd say that's a pretty good way to like leave the country. Just, I, I you know, leaving Britain is going to be harder than leaving a country that is landlocked. Uh, you know, just wander across the border in most of Europe. Um, but it's still not going to be impossible. Just jump on a boat steal a boat. The channel's not that big. You can cross the channel in a pretty small boat. And as he seemed to be compass mentis, she believed his version of events. 
He could have easily have rushed into his club after the murder, told them that he was in a pickle, and then got on to Maxwell Scott's while they got things set up for him. We only have Sandra Maxwell Scott's word for the time he arrived and left her house. Someone else could have picked him up or driven the Ford Corsair to New Haven. His friends may not have known what had happened and so were fine with aiding and abetting, as they didn't know a murder rap was on the cards. After they did know, they didn't want to get themselves into trouble, so just kept quiet about helping. Yeah. Yeah. That seems pretty likely, doesn't it? Because you'd help your friends if it wasn't like murder. I mean, there's definitely, we've talked about this before, maybe we talked about it on Casual Criminals, there's definitely that line where it's like, things I would help my friends out for. And then there's like things over the line. It's like, oh no, well, mate, you murdered someone, didn't you? So I'm not going to help you escape. And then, but if he just lied about what the crime was, then it's like, yeah, okay, I'll help you escape. You just did some like light <laughs> assault. <laughs> no, I still wouldn't help you. I'm a bad friend, but hopefully a decent citizen. <laughs> The media definitely tended towards escape rather than suicide, well of course they did because they're going to sell more papers, with headlines like Where Did He Go from the Mirror and many references like Sea Hunt, Port Hunt and Dawn Hunt cropping up all over the tabloids. Just the fact that neither hide nor a hair from his luxuriant moustache was ever seen again stokes the legend that he successfully evaded justice and has been living as a fugitive ever since. Sightings. Okay, so let's get on to the fun part, the sightings. Almost as soon as he vanished, reports of Lucan were popping up all over the place. Obviously, all of these have come to nothing, but it seems that the world has been keeping a keen eye out for this nobleman over the last half century. Sightings have been reported in France, Iceland, Goa, Australia, Botswana, Guatemala, Ireland, New Zealand. Basically, anytime someone sees a posh-sounding Englishman with a decent tash, he immediately becomes a suspect. One of these sightings hilariously led to the identification of a different fugitive when police in Melbourne, Australia were alerted to the suspicious behavior of an Englishman visiting multiple banks in December 1974. That is massively unfortunate for that dude. When they caught up with the man, it turned out not to be their top suspect, Lord Lucan, but disgraced Labour MP John Stonehouse, who had faked his own death in Miami that same year and fled to Australia. Wow, have I never heard of that story? <laughs> a Labour MP fakes his own death and goes to Miami and then Australia. That's wild. Another top suspect as the missing lord for a while was someone who went by the name of Jungle Barrier, hippie beach bum living in Goa who died in 1996. A retired detective from Scotland Yard followed this lead and even co-published a book about his theory. Barry did bear some resemblance to Luke and seemed to have vast knowledge about sports cars and was a good backgammon player and only gave vague, shady answers about his past, which was seemingly enough for people to conclude that he was the missing lord. <laughs> I know how to play backgammon. I don't know much about cars, but I could learn. And also, did Lucan know much about cars? He was the boat guy, no? He loved speedboats. Bit of a stretch. I mean, maybe there's more to it, but whatever. When the book Dead Lucky was published, it was quite quickly established by English friends of the dead beach bum that he was, in fact, a folk singer called Barry Halpin. The author, Duncan McLaughlin, and his publishers quickly changed tack to suggest that Lucan took on Barry's identity, but the case fell apart from there. Yeah, it was just too unlikely, wasn't it? It just goes to show that people are willing to believe pretty much anything. Oh yes, all the time, regularly covered on this show or my other shows, people would just, you know, it ties the leads up nicely, let's believe that, even though it's not really believable. 
When another suspect was outed in New Zealand in 2007, the fact that he was English, had a moustache, and was living in a 1974 Land Rover seemed to trump the fact that not only was he around a decade younger than Lucan would have been, he was almost half a foot shorter. There's some things about your appearance that you can easily change, but your height is not one of them. Lucan's brother thought he had probably fled to, Af fled to Africa, and friends such as Susan Maxwell Scott also maintained that he was probably still alive. The son of Sandra Rivett, who was adopted as a baby, only found out she was his birth mother in 2007. Neil Berryman has since become deeply entrenched in the case and was given access to the notes, diaries, and case files of another detective on the case, David Gehring, after his death in 2004. You know when all the detectives investigating this are dying, that the dude who escaped is either really old or definitely dead. This led Berryman to believe that Lucan is still alive, but in increasingly bad health and living in Australia. An investigation by police as recently as July 2021, however, came to the conclusion that the elderly man was not the missing Lucan. Berryman declared that the police didn't carry out a very detailed investigation with no DNA tests, etc., and he is still convinced that this man is the murderer of his mother. Just test the kid and test the man. If he gives you the DNA, if he's innocent, he probably will. And uh, yeah, you'll quickly prove that he's not Lucan. If you take a look at his website, lordlucanthetruth.com, there is a side picture of a side-by-side -side picture of 1970s Lucan and the alleged modern-day Lucan. To me, they're not the same person. Sure, he could have had some cosmetic surgery, but really the similarity does not jump out. So the mystery rolls on. Having disappeared at the age of 39, if he did escape, Lord Lucan would be 87 this year. There we go. Okay, not as old as I thought. So what does that make him? Like 19... I'm sure it was in the start, but he's he's dead. Like my conclusion from all of this, he murdered the babysitter, and he's dead, allegedly. Lucan was not officially declared dead until 1999. Okay, there we go. And I don't have to say allegedly because he's officially dead, and uh, he was tried in court and found guilty in absentia. Uh, until 1999, meaning that he was still Lord Lucan all that time and his family could not inherit any of his titles or properties. His son, George Bingham, didn't in in inherit the title of 8th Earl of Lucan until the death certificate had been issued in 2016. Damn! It took 16 years to get a death certificate. He was officially declared dead and it took 17 years? What are you up to? Get it done! You want to be that lord, you're going to get better tables in restaurants. His children have been largely vague over their father's actions and possible fate, but that's only to be expected when the only reason the media wants to talk to you is about something your dad did when you were in primary school. Yeah, just be like, f*** off. <laughs> Maybe you didn't want the title of Lord Lucan because he'd be like, I just, can I just go on with my life? Please, please leave me alone. Veronica Lucan continued to live on the in the house on Lower Belgrave Street. Her relationship with her children deteriorated, leading them to be looked after by her sister and her husband, William Shand Kidd, in 1982, and by adulthood, they were all completely estranged from her. She killed herself in 2017 with a cocktail of drugs after becoming convinced that she had Parkinson's disease, although this was self-diagnosed rather than confirmed by a doctor. Parkinson's disease, one of those diseases that you should probably get confirmed by a doctor rather than just being like, no, I have it. <laughs> okay. She kept her portrait of Lucan and some of his gambling trophies in her living room and interviews she gave over the years seemed to belie some sort of grudging, lingering respect for the man who tried to kill her. She also said that the reason it took so long to declare him dead was to avoid paying death duties, which would have prevented her from affording the fees for her children's education. Ah, how the aristocracy can fall. Whatever actually happened, the fate of the missing aristocrat far outweighed the interest in the dead Sandra Rivet, which is why her son is still trying to bring Lucan to justice all these years later. Lucan won't out himself as he's a convicted murderer, so he'd be arrested straight away. Unless DNA testing provides an answer in the future, it's unlikely that we'll ever find out 
what really happened to Lord Lucan. Unless he is still alive right now, 87 years old and living as some, you know, old man somewhere in Australia or whatever. And then there's going to be a deathbed confession and they'll confirm it by DNA. That's what I hope for because it would wrap things up really nicely. But I think the reality is he's probably dead already and there's never going to be an answer. Woo! This has been an episode of Decoding the Unknown, remarkably similar to what we do on Casual Criminalist. If you're not familiar with that show, please do check it out. It's like this. There's a podcast. There's a YouTube channel. Yes, yes. Uh, Also, if you're watching on YouTube, please use that like button below. Make sure you're subscribed. If you're watching as a podcast, a review, five stars preferred, of course, would be fantastic. If you think the show deserves less, well, you know, that's your opinion. (laughs) You're entitled to it. Do what you want. And thank you for watching or listening.